Rabbi Ami Hirsch of the Stephen Wise Free Synagogue in New York, and you're listening to In These Times. We are living through a momentous period. Historians will write extensively about the events that began unfolding on October 7th. More than a horrible tragedy, it is a turning point in history. October 7th will be the demarcation line between what came before and what comes after. One of Israel's most astute political analysts, Ari Shavit, has written dozens of opinion pieces in Israel and the Western world's leading media outlets. He appears regularly on Israeli national television and international news programs, and he is the author of the acclaimed book, My Promised Land, The Triumph and Tragedy of Israel. Ari, it's a pleasure to have you with us. Welcome to In These Times. It's a pleasure to be with you. I uh, think about you a lot because we're recording this a little over two months since October 7th. And I'm wondering just on a personal level, Ari, uh, how are you feeling? What did you feel on that day and how are you feeling now? Look, I, I had a slight advantage over many of my friends here in Israel because I, in a sense, anticipated that. I didn't know Hamas would be the one attacking us. I didn't know it will happen October 7th. But since March, I've been writing, thinking, speaking on television, speaking on social media, telling people if we don't change course, there is going to be a horrible second Yom Kippur war in 2023. I can tell you that just before Pesach, uh, I think it was early April or late March. I had an event in your town, in the Harvard Club. I was speaking with a group of distinguished and intelligent uh, American Jews and non-Jews. I said, remember 2023. It's going to be a historic year where horrible things will happen. You know, something in me, by the way, was like fearful that something like this can happen for, for years, for decades. The opening page of my promised land is about the existential fear I remember ever since I was a kid. So to begin with, I was one of the minority of Israelis who didn't buy the prosperity and quiet times narrative. I was afraid that we are not dealing with the fundamental Israeli condition for a long time. Is that because of the judicial reforms or are you referring to something else? For years and decades, I had that awareness in me. I wrote about it time after time for the last two decades. We disconnected ourselves from the Israeli condition, for forgetting where we live and what are the dangers we face. But during the year, yes, I thought that the combination of the rise of radical forces in the region, which has been happening for a few years, with Israel's decision to commit political suicide, with the judicial revolution and all the turmoil that went on here. For me, it was clear that we are bleeding weakness into the water of the Middle East. And if you bleed weakness into the water of the Middle East, the sharks will come. You don't know if they'll come from north, east, south, but you know they'll come. I can tell you that the moment the sirens went off and, and, and we went down to our shelter, I said to my wife, before we knew anything, I said, this is the second Yom Kippur War. Having said that, although I was, in a way, anticipating it, sadly, it's shocking. It's, it's 
you know, I'll, I'll take you a week later when I went a few days later down for the first time to the Gaza, to Kfar Aza and Bailey. You stand there, and at, at the time it was very fresh. I mean, they, they, they just removed the bodies, but the stench was still there, and the horrific sights when you see all these burnt, small, tiny apartments of this utopia that they tried to create there. And, you know, I came back a different person. It's always, although in a sense I wasn't surprised, I was in shock, and I'm still in shock. We had this remarkable uh, reaction of Israeli society with all the goodwill and solidarity and the volunteering and, and the people going to the army and people supporting the soldiers and supporting the hostage families and supporting each other and the harvest. It, it's amazing, amazing, beautiful activity where Israel is at its best. And yet underneath that, you know, I... I fear for us in a sense because I think we are all hurt. Even the ones who are not direct victims are all dealing here or wrestling here with something larger than ourselves. And I think that you people in New York and Chicago and Los Angeles are dealing with something that is shocking. So there's been here such an astonishing attack on the very existence of the Jewish state on the Jewish people throughout the world, and in my mind also on the free world. I don't think we totally internalized the significance and we didn't find yet the conceptual tools to deal with such an enormous, enormous historical event. I completely agree with that. First of all, we're still traumatized until we are able to reach some kind of understanding of how this war ends. We won't really be able to begin to heal. I, I, I think I understand what you're talking about in terms of the last year and the social cohesion was ripped apart in Israel. And I guess you mean something like uh, the Israeli apparatus, the political and the military and the intelligence, all those agencies that were supposed to keep their eyes on the ball, they, they might have been uh, distracted. In the broader picture, when you say we weren't confronting the real issues in the Middle East, do you mean you know, the Israeli sense that we're Western, we're highly technological, we really don't want to be part of the Middle East, we want to be uh, Western, and we forgot what neighborhood we were living in. Is that what you mean? If I may, I'll, I'll, I'll give you two answers. I'll begin with a more political one. The political one is that the Palestinian issue really became the elephant in the room that we all ignore. And I would say there was right-wing blindness in the sense of the governments and the right-wing parties ignoring the fact that we have millions of Palestinians, that you have to give some sort of solution to that issue. And there was, if you wish, left-wing uh, blindness to see how radical and some, how brutal so many of our neighbors are. So there was the dovish tendency to feel that the Palestinians are just like us and they are potentially good neighbors. And I think many of them are, and probably most of them are. But the liberals, so to speak, did not internalize the danger of Palestinian evil. And the conservatives did not address the fact that there is a Palestinian issue that has to be addressed. So, so on a political level, for years now, since the collapse of the peace process, so for over 15 years, 
we behaved as if you can ignore this issue, which is a huge issue. By the way, that had even impact on the intelligence, on the resources given it. So it, it had even like very practical manifestations. But as a society, we said, okay, we can live without addressing this issue. So that's, that's, that's one mistake, again, with its two versions. The other one, which is an even deeper one, is the one you referred to. It's the beauty of Israel, but it's also our weakness. Now, we, we try to live as if Tel Aviv is Amsterdam, you know, ignoring the fact that we are between Damascus, Beirut, and Gaza. I want to cling to that. I want Israel to be a liberal democracy and thriving and free as possible. But the profound Israeli challenge is how to protect that in such an environment, in such a neighborhood. And we somehow bought the startup nation narrative. And I have nothing against, you know, the book is great and we need high tech here. But somehow we bought into that illusion that, that successful economies have allowed us to ignore the historical, the, the tragedy of our existence. In my mind, the, the best of Israel, in a sense, is Israel of the 1960s. I take it like 1965 as an example. When Eshkol was prime minister, Rabin was chief of staff. And you already had a pretty free society. It wasn't all chalutzim, pioneers, and, and, and socialism, and, you know, kind of mobilized society. You had supermarkets and discotheques and a good life in Tel Aviv. But, but you remembered where we are. And Israel's victory in the 67 war, which was the greatest ever, is not a mistake. It's not by chance. It's because Israeli society at the time was at the perfect balance between being Athens and being Sparta. It realized it needed force and strength and discipline and resilience while keeping the values of a free society. In the last two decades, we lost that balance. And in my mind, the greatest challenge or mission now, during the war and after the war, will be to restore the Athens-Sparta balance. That's what Israel is all about. And this is how you deal with the tragedy of the conflict while being strong, but not contaminating your soul, not, not going to the dangerous ways that some of the nationalists and the ultra-nationalists uh, want to take us. All of the national investigations, I guess, are down the road, and answers to many of the questions will be discovered. But I keep on hearing that one of the operational flaws on the day itself, and perhaps this also bears on the strategic flaw that you're referring to about Western technology and advancement, there appears already to, to have been an understanding that there was an over-reliance operationally and strategically on the high-tech defense mechanism on the border itself. Do you think that's the case? Oh, oh definitely. But the good news is... Is Israeli society, the, the recovery of the army, although there are still early days, and really the Israeli spirit, Israeli society, and an amazing American support. I always liked President Joe Biden, but now he's really my hero. And I think that the reason President Biden and his administration are acting in this impressive way, it's obviously their love for Israel, but it goes beyond that, because I think that what they realize is one, we are confronting the new axis of evil, Russia, Iran, and their proxies, with China in the background. So it's a real kind of new Cold War event. If you wish, it's a second Ukraine, and probably as dramatic. 
But the second goes exactly to what you asked about. What was attacked was high-tech security. Because we didn't want boots on the ground for good reasons, all democracies, and Israel is part of it, we developed this belief in the high-tech security that using intelligence, air force, standoff weapons, cyber, all that, drones, we can protect ourselves without boots on the ground. Now, during the Obama years, it worked because technology was on the side of the West. So Obama was able to act as a very tough guy fighting terror without getting into messy new wars. These were the good years. Now we're facing the bad years because the extremists have acquired enough technology to challenge our own. And this is why what is challenged for Israel and for the West is this entire concept of high-tech security. And in a sense, we have to go back to fundamentals. You know, we need to go back to, to more conventional, traditional warfare. Crux of the matter, the challenge we face is people with 11th century values acquiring 21st century technology and capabilities in order to attack 21st century values. First of all, it's no, it's not about territories, it's not about settlements, it's not about that. It's about Israel, so the very existence of Israel. But it's also about really the free world and the ability to protect the free world. And Israel will find itself now in a position where it has to, first of all, to guarantee its own future, but lead the way. In a sense, what happened on October 7th is right in the middle between 9-11 and the nuclear Iran. Because 9-11 was 11th century people acquiring 21st century technology in order to attack the 21st century. And if, God forbid, Iran will go nuclear, you'll have that on a strategic scale. Israel and the Jews are at the front, but in my mind, the war doesn't have a name yet. Uh, I think it's really the battle for Israel, which actually resembles the Battle of Britain in the sense that it was, in 1940, very much about Britain, but it was about the entire free world as well. I find myself mostly agreeing with everything I've read that you've written and everything you say, and I I agree with that as well. So you can imagine the frustration that I and many in the Jewish community feel when we see that practically the entire world doesn't see that, or says at least they don't see it. I, I know that there are some Arab leaders who can't say in public everything they really think. But is it frustrating for you, and do you feel it's dangerous, at least in terms of public diplomacy? Most of the world doesn't see it the way you just described. Is that frustrating, and is it dangerous, actually? It's, it's very dangerous. Let me begin with something a bit more hopeful, although I'm, I am worried. I think that, first of all, the people who get it are the moderate Arabs. Now, what you cannot say in uh, Berkeley and Harvard these days, that you can say in Bahrain and you can say in the Emirates, okay? They are much more realistic about what's happening here than some people in the West. By the way, this is one of the reasons that Hamas didn't achieve so far its objective of, you know, a northern front and a third intifada in the West Bank and the rise of Israeli Arabs and the collapse of the Israeli Arab peace agreement because the moment they became ISIS, there are many people there that don't like Israel, 
But when they saw the barbarism and the ISIS behavior, they don't want to be associated with that. It's a threat for them, and it's an embarrassment for them. So you actually see that, you know, the people did not join Hamas in this sense. And what you see throughout the West is a gap between how the establishment see it. I think they realize, perhaps not in the words I use, but they realize very much what I'm talking about. And a lot of the public opinion and definitely the media and academia and and all that. So I share your concern with some hope, but I share your concern. And here I do have criticism of my own government because I think Israel's mission number one is to help President Biden help Israel. And in order to do that, you have to reach out. I think that we should have initiated uh, a wartime peace initiative. I'm not naive. I don't think that from where we are now, you can achieve peace in a year's time. But I think that there should have been a statement and, and, and an offer regarding the future of Gaza, regarding the future of the conflict, regarding the future of the Middle East, that helps people understand that Israel is a democracy, fighting as a democracy in the pursuit of peace. So during war, like in World War II, you do brutal things. You have no other way. You have to try to limit them as much as possible, and I would like us to limit it as much as possible. But the horizon must be horizon of democracy and peace. And sadly, my government was not able to be generous enough and to take this step. I still hope that reason will prevail and will take some sort of diplomatic political initiative that will actually help us win the war. And by convincing hundreds of millions of people, especially in, in Europe and North America, of what this war is about. Because right now, Obviously, people are moving away from, from the memory and the sights of October 7th. They see what's happening now in Gaza. And I think that Israel totally failed in making it clear we are not fighting the Palestinian people. We are fighting Hamas. And the goal of the war, in my mind, has to be to liberate Israelis from the existential danger of Hamas and to liberate Palestinians from the oppression of Hamas. This is a fascist organization oppressing women, gays, Christians, individuals, and wanting to slaughter all Jews, whoever they are. So it should be a war against Hamas and against Hamas-like and ISIS-like extremism. It should not be a war against the Palestinian people, which it isn't. You mentioned uh, universities and anti-Semitism. I know there were many years that you spoke very frequently with university students. What I especially appreciate about you is you're a passionate Zionist and a liberal, and you you understand how both of those concepts can coexist. What do you think is going on in the best, the most elite, the greatest institutions of higher learning in the history of civilization? What do you think is going on over there? I saw this, and and not many people were so aware of it, you know, seven, eight, nine years ago. I saw at that time so many young Jewish students who are in agony, who are in despair, because there was a gap between what they were told at home by their, you know, the Jewish establishment and this 
attack they faced in, on campuses. They, they didn't have their ammunition, and their ammunition could have been only liberal ammunition, you know, because right-wing terms could not win the battle on, on campus. But you saw the viciousness of some of their attack. You know, I saw the anti-Semitism, and I saw the, like, wild anti-Zionism, you know, up to a point you could be critical of Zionism, but, you know, it was grotesque and, 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 and brutal. My own explanation, I think it's, there are like three levels. One level, you know, the Edward Said world has conquered the, in, a lot of the intellectual, relevant intellectual and academic world. And I, by the way, I interviewed Edward Said in his office in Colombia a few years before his death. I knew him well. And that world basically does not have the tools to confront third world evil. It registers all of the evil in the sins of the West and colonialism and imperialism. And there is a lot to record and there is a lot to criticize. But there wasn't the ability to confront Pol Pot in Cambodia in the 70s. There wasn't the ability to confront the Iranian horrible regime, which is doing all the atrocities to its own people. And there isn't the ability to confront Hamas now because there is a kind of, in my mind, flawed conceptual structure which puts all the blame is on America and on the West and, and on Western powers. And when evil erupts elsewhere, you, you, you find it difficult to confront. That's one level. The second level, and this is something I, I'm not an expert, but I experienced it even as a kid when I was studying in Brooklyn Heights and, and when I was went to elementary school and public school. And this is something that went wrong in the relationship between minorities in America. And the fact that the Jews somehow stopped getting the protection of a minority and were somehow perceived as the oppressors within American society. You saw that there is this difficulty in, in acknowledging the fact that the Jews are a minority. And the third element has to do with a golden era that I'm afraid might be ending, that anti-Semitism was always there. And the Holocaust was a kind of horrible, tragic chemotherapy to that cancer. And every decade that passes, the chemotherapy has a lesser effect. So people were ashamed of it, and they really fought it, you know, for many, many years. And now too many people don't feel that need to fight it anymore. So I'm shocked, but I'm not surprised. I mean, I had so many experiences with faculty and students where, where I saw how People who loved Israel had to hide their feelings, hide their feelings, almost like Stalinist, Stalin-era experiences in American campuses where, where faculty members have to hide their feelings and their thoughts because there is such an aggressive anti-Israeli dogma that prevails. Perhaps there's something positive about the fact that it went so far in this testimony in Congress that now we acknowledge it, we address it, and perhaps we'll need you know, some new cure for this very ancient disease. I know you've been an advocate of a political resolution with the Palestinians. You mentioned it earlier in our conversation. It's hard for me to envision a diplomatic solution that doesn't involve two states coexisting. Perhaps you've changed your mind on that. What is the longer-term political horizon, do you think? And and do you think that October 7th changed the fundamentally the fundamental dynamics? 
Well, first of all, October 7th right now changed the Israeli psyche. People are traumatized here, and it will be much more difficult to market the two-state idea. But, you know, look, I, I always was willing to have a two-state solution. I was willing to pay the price. But I said it years ago that the one problem with the concept of two-state solution is the word solution. But there is no solution. The way I've been phrasing it for a long time is that we have to prevent the one-state catastrophe. And we have to, to launch a process that is leading to a two-state vision, although we realize the two-state solution cannot be implemented overnight because we tried it so many times and it failed and it had very violent outcomes. Now we are confronted with something even more difficult because after you see this extreme hate and barbarity, you have to be even more cautious. But I say to my right-wing Israeli uh, colleagues, don't go back to the mistake. Don't ignore the Palestinian issue. Regarding the Gaza Strip, I think that Israel should not control it. I would have loved the PA to come in, but the PA, the Palestinian Authority, is too weak and corrupt to do it. And therefore, I think the solution lies with the moderate Arabs or the pragmatic Arabs. And I think that what, what you will need there is a decisive outcome. I don't know exactly what can be achieved that really changes the, that, that we won't have a Hamas regime, that we'll have a kind of demilitarized Gaza, that will, you know, my, my slogan, if you wish, is what you want is a rehabilitated, demilitarized, and de-radicalized Gaza. I think that the real hope is the Marshall Plan led by the Saudis and the Emirates, because you can't have Israelis or Americans controlling Gaza. Now, why are they the best candidates? One, they have the resources. You'll need a lot of money. They have the money. Two, they prove to us, look especially Dubai, they have planning ability, building capability. They know how to build. They brought something new in the last few decades of Arab modernism that works in a, in a very impressive way, which you didn't have in the past. They know how to nourish moderate Islam. Now, the key for the future of Gaza is 500 new wonderful mosques that are big, are great, are, are beautiful and moderate. And that's the key, because we won't turn Gaza into Holland or Denmark, and, and it shouldn't be. It's part of the Middle East. But I hope that the Arab moderation or pragmatism that we've seen in recent decades will nourish or breed a Palestinian moderation, which is so needed, so that will give a kind of hope for Gaza, and then it will give hope for us as well, because we cannot occupy Gaza, and we cannot live with a Hamas-controlled Gaza. So the, the best solution, in my mind, is, if you wish, a, a Dubai plan for Gaza. And then later on, it'll be integrated into some sort of political process that will eventually bring, I hope one day, the, the Palestinian-Israeli peace. But you won't have the, the two-state solution that we were hoping for in the Camp David summit with Clinton and then with El Barak and then with Old Olmert, that won't be implemented tomorrow, but we have to take steps in the right direction. Do you think, Ari, I don't want to characterize your views. I was very supportive uh, throughout the Oslo process, and implicit in that process was the assumption that the parties would be able to bridge their differences and reconcile if not a warm peace, at least coexistence in some way or another. Do you think we, and I don't include you necessarily on this, but those of us who were 
strong supporters of that process. Do you, do you think we missed something there in terms of the Palestinian perspective on their willingness to make the compromises, concessions necessary? Palestinian nationalism, did we underestimate the vigor of Palestinian nationalism in terms of its desire to perhaps have a state, but not side by side with a Jewish state? Absolutely. Look, I again, I was really torn during the Oslo years because I supported it conceptually, ideologically, but I realized in real time that there are flaws. The mistake that the Pisciniks and liberals made were to assume that the core of the conflict is 1967. And therefore, if you give back the territories and you establish a Palestinian state in the West Bank and Gaza, you will get peace with Israel, with pre-67 Israel. At the core of the conflict lies 1948, the very existence of a Jewish state. The other element that makes it so tragic is that sadly for the Palestinians, their political leadership has endorsed a negative ethos. You know, the Zionist movement, we, we fought in a very assertive manner, but we always, there was a constructive ethos. We wanted to build a state. We wanted to be the hospital school. Sadly, Except for Salam Fayyad, who is my Palestinian hero, almost all Palestinian leaders didn't care enough about their own kids, about the future of their own people. Rather than do a proper nation-building process, there was this obsession with hating us. Now, again, let's consider what happened now. What does October 7th prove to you? This was not an attack on nationalist, extremist Israel. Who are the people? Who are the victims? It was peace-loving kibbutzniks and life-loving youngsters who were celebrating in that party. You walk into the kibbutzim, there, there are social democratic utopias that, that turned into hell, okay, by these terrible... And where did the attack happen? In the one place where Israel did exactly what the peaceniks and the international community asked it to do. It went back to the 67 line, it ended occupation and dismantled settlements. And from the Palestinian point of view, the Gaza Strip was the one, the first piece since 2005, the first time in history the Palestinians have a piece of land that is totally, not totally, but it's theirs, not run by Turks, Brits, Jordanians, Egyptians, or Israelis, by, by Palestinians. It's a, it's a mega event in Palestinian history. But rather to make it a Dubai, they make it a Hamas-controlled terror base with these fanatics. So that's the tragedy of the Palestinian people that becomes a tragedy of Israelis. And this is what we must deal with now. On the one hand, we have to fight for Israel as a democratic, as a Jewish democratic state. We must not surrender to nationalists and ultra-nationalist forces in Israel. But on the other hand, to understand that radical fascist forces took over part of the Palestinian political world, and they have to be crushed, and you have to allow the, the mo Palestinian moderation to prevail. I think that decent and moderate and life-loving and freedom-loving Palestinians need our help in really helping bring about a new kind of Palestinian political system and political reality that will then enable us to march together towards peace. Ari, I have one more uh, question for you. What do you think the effect of October 7th is on the Zionist ethos that 
always relied on the state and had faith in the military to protect its citizens, that pogroms, European-like pogroms, would never happen in Israel. Do you think there's a long-lasting effect of October 7th on, on confidence in the Zionist ethos? Wow, I love your profound questions. Um, look, the subtitle of my book, My Promised Land, was The Triumph and Tragedy of Israel. The triumph is what we built this in a, against all odds. Amazing, having Jewish sovereignty and a very impressive state. And the tragedy is the conflict. I think that what the events of October 7th and what followed true, on the one hand, they prove how brilliant the Zionist analysis was and how much a Jewish state is needed. Because when anti-Semitism comes back in such a dangerous way, you realize that the Jews don't only have a right, but they have a need to have a national home. It's essential. We cannot survive as a people without it. So on the one hand, it proves to you how correct the Zionist analysis was. On the other hand, it shows you that when we came, we rebuilt our national home in our ancient homeland in the Middle East. We built it under a volcano. And that's a tragedy. And the tragedy is still there. And I'm afraid the tragedy will still be there. And then you go into another dimension. Because part of the Zionist analysis said the Jews are amazing as individuals. And the Jews are successful as communities because they build communities throughout the world and maintain them in the most impressive way. But the Jews were very bad with sovereignty. We failed in the first temple and we failed in the second temple. There is something in our genetics. We, we find it difficult to maintain what the French and Germans and Italians and Russians and Chinese and Japanese maintain. So I think we are facing a mega Zionist moment, mega Zionist moment, because the need is so clear, the danger is so clear, and the challenge is so clear. And the challenge is we must make Israel an exemplary state. We cannot have a kind of mediocre nation. For us, you know, not only Tikkun Olam, but Tikkun Israel is not only a moral decree, it's an existential need. We will now have to rebuild Israel. I, I say we will have to build the second Israeli Republic that will balance Athens and Sparta and will take the amazing human capital, human wealth, human talent that you see everywhere in Israel and turn it into the right kind of politics. Are you confident in Israel's ability to do that? Not at all. I'm a believer, but it's, it's absolutely conditional. It's the moment, and I'll, perhaps I'll end with this, the project I'm working on now is really like a blueprint for how to do it, how to rebuild Israel. And my claim is that 2024 will be the most important year in Israel's history because it's really a make-or-break moment. On the one hand, you see all the flaws that we discovered about ourselves. Then you have the trauma, which is so profound. But then you have the amazing opportunity because of the positive forces you see coming from Israeli society and from Israeli people. 
we will not survive if we'll go on doing horrible politics with unworthy leadership, with dysfunctional political system and dysfunctional state. We will not survive. It's it's now we have to take this moment as as a amazing wake up call, and to take all the talent we have in order to rebuild Israel. And a major part of it has to renew and strengthen the alliance between the Jewish state and the Jewish world. We will not succeed without you, and you will not have a future without us. So the need, and specifically for a kind of non-Orthodox Jewish alliance of the people of the diaspora and the people of Israel, in order to rebuild this liberal, democratic Jewish state, is essential. Our future as a people depends on it. Ari, what a fascinating uh, time that you gave us here. I want to thank you. That's a good, good way to end focusing on the work ahead. Keep writing, keep speaking. Your voice is uh, very important, not only in Israel, but also abroad and throughout the Jewish and the Western world. So good luck and, and thank you for spending this time with us. Thank, thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. For years now, I have found Ari Shavit to be among the foremost analysts of Israel's political scene and an astute observer of American Jewry. It is a pleasure to listen to and absorb his deep and eloquent ideas. I want to pick up on the last point he mentioned. I wholeheartedly agree that the Jewish people cannot survive without the Jewish state. We cannot endure another loss of Jewish national self-determination. Without Israel, within several generations, save for rigorously Orthodox communities and small pockets of non-Orthodox Jews, the majority of the world's Jews will have disappeared. This explains, in part, why so many of us see October 7th as an existential attack on Jewish civilization and why we consider Israel's war on Hamas the most just of just wars. Israel's very future is at stake, and as Israel goes, so goes world Jewry. The Hamas massacre shattered something fundamental about the Zionist ethos. Israelis and American Jews believed that Israel had finally prevailed over the existential threats it dealt with since its founding. Terror groups like Hamas, Islamic Jihad, and Hezbollah, the strongest of the Iranian proxies on Israel's border, could irritate, they could do some damage, there might be rounds of fighting, but they could not threaten Israel's existence. The state of Israel was proof that the early Zionist theorists were right. The Jewish state is the solution to the problem of Jew hatred. Never again would pogroms, persecutions, massacres, and holocausts occur. Israel would protect individual Jews and the Jewish people from Cossacks, fascists, marauders, inquisitors, and fanatics. The state of Israel was proof that its first and foremost purpose to protect Jewish lives was achieved. This was the central assumption and the basis of the social compact that the state had with its citizens, that Israel was the safest place in the world to be a Jew. If anything, even more than Israelis, American Jews viewed Israel as so secure that many parts of our community spent most of their time, resources, and attention criticizing Israeli policies and dismissing claims of security and necessity. They did not view Israel as small and vulnerable. Rather, they viewed her as a regional superpower, inflicting disproportional damage and destruction on innocents. For so many young Americans and American Jews, 
This is still how they view Israel. October 7th didn't change a thing for them. But for the rest of us, October 7th, not a holocaust, but a pogrom in every way, shattered this assumption and brought Israelis back to the dark days of fear and abandonment in consequential and long-lasting ways. October 7 was not so much a repeat of the failures of the Yom Kippur War, although it was that too, in its arrogance that Israel was too strong to be attacked, and ignoring critical evidence and intelligence that in retrospect was all there. But as Ari pointed out, October 7 constitutes an existential threat akin to pre-1948 Israel, which lost a full 1% of its population winning independence. October 7 reminded Israelis and Jews worldwide of exile, that the barbarians at the gate could come into our very homes, rip babies from their mother's wombs, grab kids in their pajamas from their bedrooms, kidnap hundreds of people, commit the most savage atrocities imaginable, so horrible that we do not even describe these in public, and the state would be unable to provide protection. The sheer brutality, the joy with which the murderers carried out their atrocities, the mass celebrations of Gazans who poured out into the streets to humiliate hostages and abuse corpses, reawakened the worst fears of the most deep-seated traumas of Jewish history and identity. There is now the realization in Israel, across the board, even from peace activists. Many of those murdered and abducted were the strongest advocates for their Palestinian neighbors. There is now a consensus that, in fact, these terrorist groups aligned on Israel's borders constitute an existential threat. There is the broadest possible agreement now that Israel simply cannot live with these genocidal neighbors right over the fence and across the fields. There are neighbors in the south and the north who, if they only could, would slaughter every last Israeli without regard to their political views. The only reason 1,200 Israelis were murdered rather than 12,000 was not because of intent. If Hamas could have proceeded into major Israeli cities and towns, they would have continued to murder. They had designs to do this. They planned on staying for a month. Look at what Hamas successfully did. They emptied out both the southern part of Israel and through Hezbollah, northern Israel. Over 200,000 Israelis are displaced, living in hotels and other arrangements. In effect, they are refugees in their own country. A country that was tiny to begin with has shrunk even more. This is what makes this war thrust upon Israel, a war of no choice that must be won. No one will live on the borders of Israel. The civilians will not return as long as these threats remain. We must ask ourselves, why is Hamas so popular with young people? Hamas is opposed to everything we in the West believe. First and foremost, those very young people chanting from the river to the sea. There is no freedom of speech in Gaza. There is no political pluralism. There are no opposition parties. There is no freedom of the press, religion, or expression. Abortion is illegal. Homosexuality is illegal. Corruption is rampant. Hamas senior leaders live in luxury. What explains the support that Western liberals give to fundamentalist, misogynistic anti-Semites as Hamas and Hezbollah? Why do those who see racism in every explicit or implicit bias of daily life fail to recognize the systemic anti-Semitism of Hamas? Why do those who are so acutely sensitive to the assignment of moral accountability to both individuals and institutions fail to assign moral agency to the Palestinians? Why do they treat them as passive victims, bearing no political or moral responsibility for their actions? 
What business do progressives have supporting those who oppress women, gays, minorities, and Christians? What business do free speech advocates have ignoring suppression of free speech? Why are progressives giving aid and comfort to the enemies of progress? By what measure of decency do they abandon liberal Muslims who challenge extremists in their own midst? Why do those who so believe in diversity condemn Israel, one of the most diverse countries in the world? This is not liberalism. It is a betrayal of liberalism. It is not progressivism. It is a backsliding of progress. How could vast swaths of people in the West confuse an ISIS-like philosophy for a liberation movement and ignore, explain, deny, or justify bloodthirsty brutalities even though they were filmed by the murderers themselves? Thus, October 7 poses a threat to Israel for sure, but also revealed the moral rot within Western civilization itself. We ignore it at our peril. We have allowed radical, illiberal ideologies into our most cherished institutions, and they are infecting the minds of young American adults, and increasingly, astonishingly, and distressingly, young American Jews. A final word. All of Judaism is devoted to helping the human creature climb out of the primordial moral swamp into which we were born and to pacify the destructive impulses of our nature, to tame the beast. Evil is rooted in human nature, but so is goodness. Evil is never our destiny. We have a choice. Our choices make evil possible. But remember, it is also our choices that make love and goodness possible. A vision of glory and redemption, these two are innate in us. Until next time, this is In These Times. Thank you.